Hello, everybody. It's lovely to see you here. If you're online, watching from home, hello. I hope you're well. If you don't know me, my name's Tom. I'm the vicar here. And it's fantastic to, fantastic to see you. And I hope you're well. And for those of you off on half term, I hope that goes well. Now, what are we doing, folks? Are we cheering or are we whimpering? Anybody who's, having, who's away for half term or having, actually, you better not put your hand up because somebody might burgle your house. So let's not do that, folks. You can't trust anybody these days, can you? Not even in church. Folks, just two very quick things I'd love to say before, before, we, before we dive in. And the first thing is just to say, to echo what Helen said earlier, and that is to say, we realize that throughout our heart throughout the pandemic has always been to make decisions that we feel are a blessing to the city of Sheffield. So we've tried to avoid the, the, the argument between the left and the right, the pro-mask, the anti-mask, or the anti-vaccine, the pro-vaccine. Okay, we've just tried to avoid some of that, especially if you're on social media and you see some of the, it's, it's at, if you don't, it's on there. Honestly, it really is. So we've tried to avoid that. So what is the best for our city? And so we've had, probably of all the churches in Sheffield, pretty strict. We've been pretty strict on the whole mask thing. But we made a decision a couple of weeks ago that we thought it was right to bring children back into the gathering. We realized that that, for some people, is going to feel like a challenge. But we have to always balance, as best we can, the needs of a wide-ranging group of people. And as Helen said, it's 23 months since the children have been with pre-pandemic, week in, week out, they were here running around, waving flags, doing whatever it is that they were doing. And we felt, you know, for the sake of the discipleship of our children, we thought we should bring them in. And as Helen has said beautifully, I can't really add to that, there is something prophetic and profound when we're dwelling in unity, young and old, worshipping the risen Jesus. And we just felt, we just, as the, we believe, God willing, that we're on the tail end of this pandemic. Yeah. Hallelujah. That it was time to bring the children in. It gives us more time at the end, folks, to wait on the Lord and see what he wants to do. Because otherwise, when the kids are in there for a long period of time and they're kind of, you know, they're eating plasterboard and stuff like that. And it's costing a fortune in repairs. So um, that's, guys, what we do. We always hold it lightly, folks. And we follow what the, we sense the wisdom of the Lord, but also government advice and things like that. And so we want to, don't be blasé about this, but we do want to bring really the family of God together. And uh, I hope that you can track with us in that. There is lots of space at the 9 a.m. gathering. And there's a bit more space at the evening gathering, particularly in the balcony, if you want social distance. And we know that's a real concern for a lot of people. So we're not taking that lightly at all. So there is provision in the other gatherings, but we just felt for this season, particularly tracking with the Lord, right to bring the kids in. And um, my eye nearly got taken out by one of those flyers. So there you go. My son was waving it around. Folks, the second thing to say is, and I'm not quite how, how, how to say this, but, but I'm going to start with an apology. Today is Racial Justice Sunday. And the church is, is really kind of championing this date, and it's been around for a long time, on the back of the Stephen Lawrence murder, a time when Christians would rise up and say, enough, and let's end racism. And I just want to say, I don't feel as a church, our church, and I take full responsibility for this, that we've done enough in the wake 
of, the George, of George Floyd's murder in the States. To hear the stories that there are in our church family of members of our church who have been subjected to and are subjected to racism. And as a church family, if we're going to be for the city, which is, I believe, is a vision God's given us, we're going to have to think about um, our diversity. But we're also going to have to hear, as uncomfortable as it may be, folks, what some of our members of our church family live with all the time. So we can stand with them prophetically and say, enough. But we can listen and grow and learn. And so one of the things I'm going to do next week, um, this is a kind of, if you're here for the first time, you, you've caught us in the middle of a, a month of vision. And so what I'm going to talk about now is, is kind of a little, kind of attaches to what we talked about last week. And then next week, there'll be like a proper vision Sunday, folks, with PowerPoints. We kind of keep it a legal meeting, you know. We're going to talk about, talk about some bits and bobs that we're going to hopefully be doing. And then the final Sunday of February, we're talking about vision, is Gareth Ingle who's going to be planting a church in Furvale. He's going to be speaking and really sharing his heart for Furvale. And so he's looking for people to move to Furvale. So I, I would just, it's going to be passionate. So I wouldn't come that Sunday because you might move house as a result, folks. Because <laughs> that guy is like an Exocet missile and he's looking for people who are willing to go get behind the vision and so are we. So folks, I just wanted to say from the start, folks, we, we haven't done enough, I haven't done enough. And I realize for some people that's been a source of pain. Um, but folks, we, we, uh, I hope that you can forgive me uh, and we're going to move forward so that we can hear some of the, some of the stories. So folks, that's where, that's where we're going with vision. And just a very brief, brief recap. If you're wondering what, is, what have I walked into, are they always this intense? Yes, folks, we are. And you're very welcome to join us. What we're looking at is in this, I've been the vicar since, officially since May. And so we're asking the question, what, does the, what do we think Jesus wants us to do in, in the next season? That sounds very grand, doesn't it? It's pretty simple, I think, because I don't think he ever changes. And that really is to track with what uh, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 29, which is, and you can read that in another time, first seven verses. It's about loving our city, that we're planted in the city, the People of God are taken from Jerusalem into a place called Babylon. They really don't want to be there. It's awful for them. And it is nothing like Jerusalem. And they want to get back. And Jeremiah says, no, you're going to be there for 70 years. I imagine it was incredibly encouraging, folks, to be there for 70 years. And whilst you're there, settle down, uh, have children, plant a garden, grow veg or whatever it is you're going to do, and seek the peace and prosperity of the city where you've landed. Love it. As you would Jerusalem. Uh, be, be blessed to be a blessing. Be representatives of God in the city. And so for our hearts is to be a church for the city. Are we the only show in town? No, we're not. We're part of what it is, that the rich tapestry of, of churches in our city that love this city. God is doing amazing things. I mean, that, um, I'm not going to list them, but I'd go there if I was you. There's some amazing churches in the city. And God is doing something drawing together a passion for our city. And that's our part to play, is to love this city, to be for the city. And one of the ways that's going to be different for us in this next season is that we are going to work with the Diocese of Sheffield. We're Anglican and Baptist, and I've made a gag. This side's Baptist, that side Anglican. 
and students are picking up on that joke, so I need to think of another one to try and illustrate the fact that we're two churches in one. And we are going to plant churches, which means, what does that mean? It means that we're sending groups of people from our church to other parts of the city with our love and blessing and with finances, and we're going to cheer them on as independent, separate churches as they seek the peace and prosperity of their patch of Sheffield. And we're doing that twice this year. We are grafting a church, or grafting, if you're from the south, so you can understand what I'm saying. I mean, graft. Okay, you're a tough crowd today. That's okay. Into a place called Christ Church Stannington, which is kind of the other side of the hills, and then into Furvale, as I've mentioned before, with Gareth Ingle will lead the team there, and so we're going to hear about that for the next couple of weeks. So, folks, what is going to be required of us on this journey to be a church that is for the city and a church that is sending out, grafting and planting teams across this city of Sheffield? What's going to be required of us? And we are journeying throughout through the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll, last week, we met a guy called Gideon. And I'll say something very briefly about Gideon, and then we're going to read the scripture together. This covers a, a period of history in the Old Testament from when Joshua settled, kind of establishing the people of God in the Promised Land. And the period of history from there until we meet a man called Saul, and then we meet a man called David, who is, we will, most of us will know him and David. And if you're familiar with the Psalms, he's written a lot of the Psalms, but one of the most amazing kings, probably the king that Israel will, even now, will look back on King David. But we're in this kind of middle block, and it's called the seasonal period of the judges. And we're going to meet a man called Gideon, who's also known as Hacker, not in the computer sense, thank you. But he's a man who is the eighth judge. And the idea is that God is looking for people that will reflect his heart, who can lead God's people in a really difficult season. It is a season that is defined by fear. It is a season where the people of God find themselves very much on the back foot, so much so that they're now eking out an existence living in caves. It's not a good look, folks. And yet into that fear... God chooses the most unlikely person, a man called Gideon, who is absolutely terrified. And yet God sees something in him and says, the Lord is going to use you in the most profound way. And then, so what we've, what we've learned last week is that God has called him, God has blessed him profoundly, and then we're going to pick up the story in Judges chapter 7, and I'm going to read that to us now. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. Listen to these words. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. <laughs> so 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. That's a lot, isn't it, folks? But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. 
Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap, who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got on down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over their provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go to the camp with your servant Porah and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Porah, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could be no more counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled Bethshita towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abla near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. I'm just going to read a little bit more. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. There you go, folks. So it's a long reading, a really, really, really long reading. Before that long reading, 
There's a moment where Gideon, who has been called by the Lord, and when the Lord's called him and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, who's absolutely terrified that God has told him to do specific things, he's gone into his hometown and taken down a huge statue to the God of the time called Baal. And it's gone down like an absolute lead balloon with the locals. And as God begins to call him again, Gideon has something called a fleece, and he lays the fleece out before the Lord, and he's kind of doing a deal with the Lord. Even though God has said, I will be with you, is it not me that's sending you? And if you're familiar with stories throughout the Old Testament, when God calls a specific person, he'll often say, is it not me? I am with you. I am sending you. I am present in your life. If I'm calling you and I'm with you, then you will be okay. And so what happens with Gideon, we know that he's a man who is crippled with fear. And so there is this back and forth with the Lord where Gideon lays a fleece. And sometimes if you ever talk about discerning calling, you know, sometimes people say, oh, just lay a fleece. And what happens is, is they lay out a fleece, there's dew and the fleece is dry and then Gideon goes back again to God and says, oh, can, we just, can we just do it again so I'm sure? And in it, God is super gracious. God is really kind. And yet, what it reveals to us is that Gideon is struggling to embrace faith. Because to lay a fleece like that is actually something that Israelites would not do. It's something that people who worship Baal do. But it shows, one, that God uses fearful people. Hallelujah, because I find that very, very reassuring, folks. I find it very reassuring that God, that God uses weak people because I, too, am weak. And I find it really reassuring that you see Gideon, even though God moves powerfully in his life, when God asks him to do something again, it's like he has a serious case of amnesia and goes through the whole thing again. Because I find, folks, that's exactly what I do. I know you were really gracious and you were really faithful last time, Lord, but are you really going to do it this time? And that's what happens in Gideon's life. But yet we see something of the heart and the kindness of God in the whole thing. And then we get to this crazy, crazy call from the Lord. Below the people of God are 135 thousand Midianites. Okay, that's quite a lot of people. And actually, what Judges tells us is that for some reason makes the point about there's so many camels. So you can just imagine, it must have been an absolutely terrifying sight, 135,000 fighting people with all of their stuff, their camels and their, and their, um, and their kind of swords. It must have been, the noise alone must have been terrifying. And then the army of the people of God is 30-odd thousand. Now, I'm not very good at maths, but even then I'd have thought, I'm not sure this is going to work in our favor. And then God says something absolutely remarkable. He says, if anyone's a bit nervous, they can go home. 20, and so 22,000 think, I am a bit nervous. <laughs> because there's 135,000 of them. And I'm looking around, and I'm, so we're going home. And do you know why he does that? Because it says in Deuteronomy, that's what you can do. So he's following the biblical command. And the theory is this, is that fear spreads. I think that's true, folks. Do you remember the, uh, do you remember the show Dad's Army? You remember that? Do you remember the guy who, oh, is it Fraser? We're all doomed. You remember that guy? 
You don't want to be around him when you're facing 135,000 people because you're thinking that anyway, but he's just got the guts to say it. We're all doomed. And I think it's better that he's Scottish. If you're Scottish, you're very welcome. But there's something beautiful and morose about we're all doomed. You know, there's that sense of impending doom. So Gideon says, you can go. So 20, did he know 22,000 were going to go? I don't know. What was going through? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I bet it wasn't. Praise Jesus. So 22,000 go. Because they can. So it's okay. Maybe he's left with the SAS folks. Over 10,000 of their best, most elites. Yes, this is what we want. He's going to do it. Bear grills. 10,000 bear grills, folks. What can go wrong? And so God calls them to, to this kind of weird moment where he says, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps. Okay, that's weird. We've got a 19-week-old Labrador, and what she does is when she drinks, she just is like a tornado. She's just like, uh, you know, they're very, dogs are messy drinkers. Put their head near the water, and they, have, they just drink it up. They leave water everywhere. And so it, for the guys who... Um, put their head so close to the water, uh, they're sent home. Now, we don't really know why. But here's the thing. There's a couple of schools of theory, and theologians love to debate this. Theologians love to debate things, and they never agree. But here's two schools of thought. One is that by just putting your head so close to the water, then in some sense you're, you're showing a lack of skill because you're not aware of the danger around you. And yet there's one theory that says maybe they're so confident that they don't care, so they just put their head in the water. But either way, the, the people that pick out the water with their hand and cup it like that as they scoop in the water and lift it up to drink, some say, well, they're really skilled, so you want them. And then some theologians say, well, actually, they're really terrified because they could be a bit like this, couldn't they? We don't know. But what we do know is it's whittled down to 300. 300. I'd have gone home. 135,000 to 300. Honestly. What's going on there? You see, God has called Gideon at a time when it's a really hard season for the people of God. The dream of what Israel could be, the dream of the promised land, the best years seem they were behind them. That everything looks like it's all gone. And the one man God calls is terrified. It can only really be God when you think about it, can't it? And when God, when Gideon asks the Lord for additional signs with the fleece, when it gets to the battle, God totally eviscerates any sense of self-confidence that the people of God might have. He says, he says, you see, because God, throughout the story of Gideon so far, the main 
character, the main lead in this is the Lord himself. God has promised his presence. God has promised to bring breakthrough. God has promised that he will do it. And Gideon is having a hard time believing that. So he's looking for additional things. He's holding on to the fleece, just saying, no, God, I know you're with me, but this will make me feel safer in a time of uncertainty, that this particular thing will give me additional courage and strength. And God's like, no, I'm going to take that all away and strip it down to 300 people. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Why do I say that? What, what is the significance of this? I've noticed something, folks, and, and I, I want to be as honest as I can be when you're streaming live online and you've got no idea who's watching. I'm finding that when we talk about our vision for church planting, I'm having a similar conversation with a number of people, and in that similar conversation, we're getting a very similar reaction. And it goes something like this. So we're going to send out, we're going to plant potentially two churches, one's a graft, one's a plant this year. Da, 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 da. So you go, okay, how many people might that be? Well, it could be 30, go there, and uh, 20, 30, go there. And remember, Gareth Ingle is speaking in two weeks' time, that our church planter, for that, and he's going to be looking to recruit you guys. So it could be even more people. So you have this conversation, they go, all oh, these people are going to go, da, 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 da. And, and they'll be leaving the church with it, and they go, well, we'll, we'll be sending them out, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, and, and they're presumably they give money to the church. And yeah, they give money to the church. And they go, okay, so we'll be losing. Could we lose 70 or 80 people? And then they say, 70 Well, that's quite a lot of money. How, how are we going to, well, what's going to happen to our church? Because it will get less. And we're a big church. And we're well known. And we've got, and we, you know, it's St. Thomas Crooks. Well, we're always a big church. And we've got a history. Well, it might get less. Well, well how's that going to work? Well, do you think we should wait for post-pandemic and a better time? When, when, and, and that conversation is... It, and sometimes I have that conversation with myself. Lord, am I going to... Are we going to kill this? And it struck me, you know, because I'm a slow learner. We're not doing this from a place of strength. God's called us, I think, to do this from a place of dependency. And in the same way that God strips back Gideon's army, and I can't imagine how painful that is and how vulnerable and exposed they must have felt. There's a sense in which God is saying, and in fact it says that, 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 that all Israel would cry out that the Lord did it. And I think that part of the planting call that there is on the life of our church is to be met with us in a sense of, God, this is all yours anyway. And God, if you're, let us, let us be open-handed. Let us hold what it is that you've given us lightly. And when God calls people into the next place and the next part of our city, we go hallelujah. 
and we bless and we encourage and we release and we don't hold tight for a better day. Or we don't hold tight for a day that we will be in a better place because this is the day. And I wanted to raise that because it's a conversation that comes back and back again. And I look in the whites of their eyes and they say, are we mad? And I'll go, yeah. (laughs) But it's in the book. And if he calls us, it's going to be one heck of a ride. But if he calls us, he'll always meet us. And if he calls us and he meets us, he'll promise his presence. And where he promises his, his presence, he'll promise his provision. And you know, guys, what strikes me about this is that even when God speaks, to Gide, speaks tells Gideon to do that, Gideon, God, God makes an allowance for Gideon's fear. He is so kind. And he says, if you want, you can go down and listen to the camp and you'll hear that what I'm saying is true. And so Gideon goes down with Purah and they listen at the camp and somebody shares a weird dream. And in their weird dream, they say, oh, a loaf of bread rolls down a hill and knocks down a tent. And it's the confirmation that Gideon needs. Now, you could argue, wag your finger and say, well, has the Lord not spoken? Of course he has. Has Gideon not heard? Yeah, kind of, but he's got some, he's dealing with his fear issues, folks. So when he has confirmation from the enemy himself, he says, God will do it. They don't have to use their swords. They just blow trumpets and break jars. And their heart cry is for the Lord and for Gideon. And you know what? God does it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Such is the kindness of the Lord. So folks, in this season, we're not going to be planting from strength. Do you know during COVID, I think we've lost about um, two, 300 people from our church. Now, I'll be honest, I feel nervous saying that when we're online. Because as part of me, my insecurity wants everybody to know this is a big church. I mean, where's that from, folks? It's not from the heart of the Lord, is it? It's fear. But also, one of our values has to be truth. And as we've journeyed through COVID, we have people, for for all variety of reasons, either they've moved to their home churches near where they live, or or for for whatever reasons they they haven't tracked they haven't stayed on the journey and some of it's that some of that is really really sad but for some of it's really good because people want to go to other places and we want to bless that so our church is a little thinner folks and lots of new people have joined but we've we know if we're like a pair of jeans there's plenty of room for growth so it could be tempting to not say that and it could be tempting to say, well, let's hold, let's hold back till we're stronger. But there's something around, we say around 300 in the core of our church now. And it feels that God did something remarkable with 300 people in the book of Judges. 
And so it feels somehow prophetically we should go back to the fact that we're called to give back to God what is God's and trust him in this season. And you know, folks, as we, and, and the feedback from last week has been really positive and encouraging as we talk about planting. But that will feel, folks, it will feel vulnerable at times. Because what will happen is we will say goodbye to people that we love. But do you know what? We can absolutely guarantee that the Lord Jesus Christ will meet us in that place of vulnerability. Oh, surely one of our values is if we're going to walk as a church to be a people of faith, a people who are hungry to see the Lord move in our city, is we might need to get used to living with a sense of vulnerability. Because our Lord Jesus Christ himself stepped into the world as a baby, the definition of vulnerability. What we see in the cross of Jesus as he dies naked, the most vile form of persecution really known to humanity is a form of vulnerability. And yet God meets that vulnerability profoundly powerfully with the resurrection of Jesus. Which means we hold the tension of the vulnerability. And in that vulnerability saying, Jesus, this sucks. It's really painful right now. But we know, Jesus, that you are going to be powerfully present as we're on our knees calling out to you for our sake of our city. So we can be a church for the city. In Gideon's life, there are two halves to his life. And next week we come to, because we don't just want to stick with the good stories, because that is a bit of a blind spot for often churches like ours, that we pick out the Old Testament characters, and da-da, they lived happily ever after, like it's Disney. Well, it goes bad for Gideon, folks. But in his good days, the days are when he lives with fear and vulnerability. That's when he's worshipping. That's when he's praying. That's when he's dependency. That's when he's embracing the vulnerability. So folks, in this next season, we're not stepping into it from a place of strength on the basis of our history, on the basis of our reputation. We step forward, folks, on the basis that we are dependent on him. And as we grow in that dependence, he will come in power and do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. A couple of years ago, I was at Cambridge Station. We were living there at the time, Chris and I. We were missionaries to the south. <laughs> and I had a little card in my wallet. And I felt the Lord say, Throw it in the bin. It wasn't a bank card, folks. <laughs> but it said, Oxford University alumni. Now, the backstory is this, folks. I just was super brief. Is that if you know anything of my story, you'll know that my educational history is uh, comical at best, shall we say. When I was 16, I left school with six Ds, two Es, and an F. Now, the F, folks, was for French. And I spoke my oral French exam in English with a French accent. <laughs> Inspired by Alo Alo. Do you remember that guy? Good morning. Instead of saying, passing by, he said, I was busy by. And there we go. 
So that's what I did, folks. And this is amazing what you can do if you have the, the French accent. There you go. So, folks, many, many, so get into, get into a, a further education college, did GCSEs again, which was a low point, folks, because um, pretty much all of my friends did really well. I was like, I was like the, the dunce guy who, who didn't do very well, went back, did it all again, needed four Cs to do A-levels, only got three, but I knew a guy from my church who let me in through the back door. Ever has it been the case, folks, God has always sent somebody. And then scraped through some A-levels, went to university, did do theology, got a Desmond, a 2-2, a 2-2. We called it a Desmond in those days. Managed to get through somehow. And then I was at Theological College. Fast forward to um, Theological College in Oxford, of all places. And discovered, by the grace of God, that um, I have a neurodiversity called dyslexia. It had been missed. And there's lots of reasons why that was, which I won't go into now. And God has been so kind to me. My mother, when I was about three or four years old, had a prophetic picture, that sense of she was just praying and like she does now. And she said she saw me in a dog collar. That bit hasn't quite happened. But she knew that she had a sense that I was called to do what I'm doing. She didn't share, she didn't share it so much later, because that would have been a bit weird. But there's a sense of, even from them, God had set a calling. But I knew that I couldn't do it because I didn't have the academic credentials. But yet God has, time after time, time after time, time after time, been so good. And yet there was part of that which I held on to just a little too tightly. When we were working in Cambridge, a lot of our church was super smart. I mean, super, super, super smart. And I would have told you that I had no issue, and most of the time I didn't, but just occasionally, when I felt threatened, when I felt most insecure, I would just remember I had that little piece of plastic in my wallet that said Oxford University alumni, because by the grace of God, I ended up at the university. When I felt threatened, when I felt like I didn't belong, where I felt like I, was, I had a sense of imposter syndrome, I would think about that little piece of plastic in my wallet. Sometimes, on a, and it's really embarrassing to say this, but sometimes if I was paying for, for something, I'd put my wallet out, and if it fell open and, the, and people would see it, I felt good about that. Like people can see it. I just felt the Lord say, Trust me for your identity. And so I resisted throwing it away. <laughs> and resisted throwing it away. And resisted throwing it away. Until one day, I lobbed it in the bin. And then I was trying to get it out again. Chucked <laughs> <laughs> it away. And I think perhaps for us as a church family, there's an invitation from the Lord As we head into Lent, we're going to look at my father's heart for us to connect afresh with the Lord. That if we're going through times of absolute challenge where it feels like everything's stripped away, where it feels like, okay, we're not looking after an army now 300, but it just feels like everything is taken away. 
where we can't control. Maybe your kind of fleece or your version of the plastic card is you like a plan, you feel you can't plan, or whatever it might be for you in this time, that it feels like it's stripped away. As we head into this season of planting, you think, man, we're going to send out people I love. I just find that really hard. And stripped back, it's like, well, Lord, I give it to you. I give the security that I crave, the plans that make me feel comfortable and safe. I give it to you. And although the vulnerability is hard, Jesus, I know that it's the path of faith. I know that it's faith, the path of faith is putting one foot in front of the other where there's nothing there and he meets us in his power and in his glory. And so that the heart cry of our church might be like that in Judges, that, that we may look back in the future and think, God, you were amazing. Jesus, you did it. You met every need. You overcame every problem. Jesus, you went before us. When we ran out of money at the 11th hour, you brought the money in. God, when it felt like everybody was leaving, you brought people in. When it felt like we couldn't send it, you, God, you, Lord, are amazing. The path of faith is marked with vulnerability. And as a church family in this next season, we won't be stepping it from a place of strength. We'll be stepping into it from a place of dependency. Because when you do that, the Lord in his kindness, as he does with Gideon, always meets us in that place.